of Jesus. Is it pleasant? Is it harsh? Is it suffocating? Is it liberating? The parables, like the one before us, is given to help us answer that very question. Like the last parable we looked at in Matthew 13, it begins with a simile. Now, girls, we don't, might not know what a simile is. It's a, it's a literary term. It's to use the word like. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. Well, now he's going to say the kingdom of God is like a king who had a wedding feast for his son. The ESV, I believe, renders it may be compared to, but that's still the gist of the matter here. Jesus is teaching his disciples what his kingdom is like. And like the parable of the tenants that precedes this parable, the parable carries the same truth. And so often when we read the word of God, what you want the pastor to get to and you want to get to is what do I need to do? What do I need to believe, right? Well, that's not a bad thing, right? Because we want to believe and we want to do what God wants us to do. But I think we need to step back from the text and think about the context in which Jesus is giving the parables, particularly in this pericope, in this little section here of of Matthew's gospel. That the truth being taught is that the nation of Israel refuses to believe and to receive her Messiah. So these parables, the parables of the two sons, the parables of the tenants, the parable of the wedding feast, is given in the context, in the environment of hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in John chapter one, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. We just read that this week in our home. And I thought to myself, isn't it amazing? God walked among us. He walked among the very children, the very biological descendants of Abraham. And yet they refused him. They rejected him. And it's in this context of rejection, hostility to her Messiah as a nation who were given the oracles, the covenants, the promises that Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham, David's greatest son, who would be the savior, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all the world. Through your seed, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the ethne of the world. So it's in that context we need to listen and hear this parable of the wedding feast. So with that said, let me uh, read it, and then we'll just quickly and briefly look through it. The parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And his servants, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, 
another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray and ask in the promise of the new covenant that all would be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And yet, Lord, we know that you've given teachers and preachers to the church. It is my calling. I pray now that I would decrease, that Christ would increase, that all of us together as your body would make much of him We thank you, Father, for the grand invitation to come. I pray that we would honor the Son Son of God as we do come. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at this text under three simple headings. The banquet, the invitation, and the qualification. The banquet, the invitation, and the qualification. First, the banquet. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a feast. Not just any feast, but a wedding feast. Not thrown by just anybody, but a wedding feast thrown by a king for his son, the prince. This is a royal feast. One of the things that struck me over the past few weeks, particularly as with the death of Queen Elizabeth, was just how good the the Brits do pageantry and feast they do it they do it well they do uh, the 39 articles their wedding liturgies they're they're phenomenal really they really are they're just spot on they do it right you know at this feast though we know that there's going to be eating and drinking and rejoicing and a feast a wedding feast particularly in the first century could last up to four days now, we've had some great weddings here. As I look at Nels and Rebecca, and I think, wow, I love that wedding. Not because I love them, but I just I thought it was great. I love being with you guys. You guys are family. It's just good being together. Coveted, no doubt, right, by all. To have a, a wedding invitation with the, with the seal of the king. You can imagine just, wow, 
I can't believe it. The who's who of the kingdom were expected to be there. But I wonder this evening how many of us, if I asked this evening prior to the reading of the text of Scripture, that you would have likened the kingdom of heaven to a feast. Let's be honest. A place of abundance. A place of overwhelming provision. A place where souls are filled and satisfied. I know one man in this building who would have said that. But beloved, this is the picture the Lord paints of his kingdom. It's a feast, a a banquet. Isaiah 25, did you listen as Mr. Hutton was reading? The mountain of the Lord, right? 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine. And this feast here symbolizes the very blessing of God's salvation. J.C. Ryle, the famous expositor, 19th century, there is in the gospel a complete provision for all the wants of man's soul. There is a supply of everything that can be required to relieve spiritual hunger and thirst. For many, though, the metaphor of a kingdom of God as a feast comes as a surprise. Many, I'm afraid, associate the kingdom of God oftentimes with deprivation. The kingdom of God is all about what you can't do. But to the regenerate soul, the gospel of the kingdom is a feast for the soul. It it satisfies our deepest longings, the desires of the heart. Today, in part, as we live between the already not yet, right, we come and we have the feast of the word of God faithfully, hopefully proclaimed, expounded for you. The feast, foretaste of the bread and the wine that anticipates the great banquet, the great wedding feast that we're speaking of even now. And one day, we're going to sit at the king's table in all of its fullness. And believe it or not, I read this in Luke, the Son of God is going to serve us in the kingdom of God. I I had to stop right there. What? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's who he is. He's a servant king. He's always serving. He's like a faithful husband. Right? I can say this. Mr. Stillwell's not here. But I admire that man so much as a husband. The way that he loves Lucille. He just rocks my world when I watch his life in a good way. It's like smelling salts on the sidelines of a sporting event. What? Well, look, get, get it together. Ed Welsh speaks in his book Addiction, talking about the, what the world pretends to uh, offer as a feast, but it's only illusion. He says in his book Addiction, he, the world's feast, a banquet, or banquets in the grave. It may look good, it may even taste good, but in the end it is as poison, it leads to sickness and death. You see, there is pleasure in sin. I tell my kids this all the time. There's pleasure in sin? Yeah, I get it. There's bait on the hook. Of course there is. You have to put bait on the hook. No fish worth his fishness is going to bite a hook without bait. There's pleasure in sin. But eventually the hook hook bites. 
and you reap what you sow. Author Jack Higgins, of this, speaking of this emptiness of the world's pleasures, at the peak of his career, you know, Jack Higgins wrote a bunch of uh, like uh, spy novels, techno novels. Uh, he was the top of his game and he said at this, at the top of his game, he said this, I wish someone had told me that when one gets to the top that there's nothing there. God's at work in that man. He died this past year in, on April 9th. I don't know if he ever did business with God. But existentially, he was, he was moved, wasn't he? Because he was created for God in the heart of a man, woman, boy, little girl, young girl, is restless until it rests in God. We're made for God. We're made to worship. He's the only thing that satisfies. Right? Solid joys and lasting treasures. None, none, none but Zion's children know. Right? Sublime. Money cannot buy the treasures of Zion. Of Zion. Money can't give you hope at the grave. But Jesus of Nazareth, he's lasting joys. And lasting treasures. So that's the banquet. What's about the invitation, right? When the invitations initially went out, they went to a select list, right? You just didn't show up. You don't just show up at Buckingham Palace and go, I'm here to see the queen, right? When they have a, a festive occasion. In the ancient world, two invita- invitations would be sent out when a great banquet or feast was to be held. The first invitation would be sent in advance, much like we do with our RSVP, right? Nels and Rebecca are getting married, and that's just a date. Can you, we'd love to have your attendance to please come. And then you respond back. Well, that, that would happen. But once everything was ready in the first century, everything was prepared, and it was time. A, a second invitation would be given to those who had been invited. And we see this in verse 3, right? The king sent his servants to call those who were invited, right? Those who had RSVP'd to the wedding feast, But notice what it says, but they would not come. Beloved, when the king summons you, it's the highest insult not to respond. They would not come. Right? You were expected to come when the king called. You see, the point Jesus here is making is that the same one he made earlier in the parable of the tenants, the the leadership and the religious establishment in the nation of Israel had not responded to God's summon to honor the beloved son. This Jesus of Nazareth is not the Messiah we were looking for. He doesn't meet our prerequisites. What besides, what good could come out of Nazareth? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But surely there had to be some mistake, right? So the king sends more servants. And notice we're given details of the banquet, right? It's not just a banquet, but notice in verse 10, again he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The best of the very best food that money could buy. The best of the very best 
wine that one could procure. But still they would not come. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business. You see, this first group of invited guests are indifferent. These are folks who are ambivalent, right? These are the folks, they're kind of like the folks where the seed falls on the hardened path, right? The word just goes off them like water off a duck's back, right? The seed's thrown out there, it's trampled on, the birds of the air come and they pluck it away. They don't care, we're told that. Initially, they received the invitation, but now they're reneging on the promise. In Matthew's account, none of the invited guests have a compelling conflict, right? Well, it says one went to his farm and the other to his business. Nothing really urgent here. It's only when we turn over to Luke's account in the parallel account in Luke 14 that we get a little more detail, a little more color. Listen to the detail Luke gives us. But they all alike began to make excuses the first said I have just bought a field I must go and see it please excuse me another said I have just bought five oxen and on my way to try them out please excuse me still another said I just got married so I can't come now none of the invitees faced a crisis right these excuses I think Luke wants to see them see wants us to see them as pretty lame right I bought some land, but I didn't see it before I bought it. What? Who buys land without looking at it before you purchase it? And who buys oxen before testing them? Well, you can maybe give the last guy a break, right? Deuteronomy does give a year break from military service, but who doesn't want to go to a feast, right? This is a feast. This is not a, something, a duty so much as it is a feast to be enjoyed. The bottom line is that these folks simply don't care. And how rude. After initially saying they would attend. But the cares and the concerns of the world begin to squeeze out the calling of God. I don't know. I don't think I can go tonight. It's Sunday night. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm just not sure. Remember now, this parable is given to the religious establishment. Men who and women who were religious, yes, but only used it to get what they wanted. They used God. God was their servant. Not in the way that we think in the proper way, that Jesus is the servant, the covenant servant, but that we use God to get ahead for whatever we want. And I thought to myself, and I wrote this sermon before I wrote this morning's sermon. These very folks are the the cousins of Jeroboam. Right? They're, they're using religion because they want all the benefits of religion, but they don't want God. They want all the benefits of the kingdom of God, but they don't want the king. R.T. France says this, they want religion and give it a place in their lives, but only a safe and limited place. When it comes time to decide between God or personal pleasure, God is on the short end of the stick. You know anybody like that? (laughs) I'm like that occasionally. But notice, but notice there's another group of invitees, right? Not just those who are ambivalent. Some are downright hostile. Look at verse 6. The rest seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
Not only were they ambivalent saying, no, we're not coming. We don't care. We got other things to do. They began to beat some of the king's servants, even killing some of the king's servants. They don't respect nor fear the king. Notice how the king responds, though, in verse 7. It's a fearful and awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to the living king. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And I read a few commentators that connect this to the, the, the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD, right? When Rome comes in and levels the place. Church, he's good. He is good. Mr. Hutton told us he's good. The word of God tells us he's good. But he's not to be trifled with. He's not safe. He's holy. The king is holy. His joys are holy. His pleasures are holy. His goodness is holy. His law is holy. He is holy. Note, though, that there are two responses, right? Indifference, ambivalence, and hostility. Both bring the judgment of God, right? We think, well, only those who are hostile to religion are going to face the judgment of God. Nope. The actual, those who are ambivalent, those who are indifferent. But notice, praise God, praise God, praise God, that judgment's not the final word, right? Not the last word. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds. One man's rejection is another man's invitation. The king sends servants again, back out again. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find, Beloved, in other words, go into the highways, into the byways, and tell whosoever will let them come to the feast of the king that he's throwing for his son. This is exactly, now listen, this is a theological point. You have to follow me now. This is exactly what Paul speaks about in Romans 11 where the Apostle Paul tells us that Israel's rejection of her Messiah means riches for whom? For the world. This is the counsel of God being worked out, played out on the canvas of history. As his people, according to the flesh, the biological descendants of Abraham, reject Messiah, he takes his gospel and he sends it to the world. We saw that all through Acts, didn't we? Right? He'd go into the synagogue, preach the gospel. Some believed, some didn't. Some, then they'd become very hostile. They'd run him out of town. He'd go to the Gentiles. That's exactly what's happening here. You see, the natural branches, right, is the biological descendants of Abraham were broken off that we Gentiles might be grafted in. All are now invited. All the nations of the earth are now invited to come to Yahweh and to Yahweh's son, to kiss the son, as Psalm 2 invites us, lest he be angry with you. Right? Go find whosoever will come. Go into the highways, to the byways. Luke says, go and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Bring in the outcast, the sinners. No one is to be excluded from the feast of the king. None. 
Luke tells us in chapter 14, that parallel account, that when the servants return from inviting whosoever will come, they find out that there's still more room. Do you see the heart of God? There's still more room at the king's table. Go out to the roads, to the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Do you see God's heart? Do you see God's heart for the ambivalent, to the hostile, to me, to you? This word compel indicates the the strength with which the guests are to be urged to come. Plead with them, urge them to come. Why won't they come? Why won't you come? You see? Invite them. Invite everyone you know and encounter. There's room at the Father's table. Beloved, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for you? That there's room for you, Presbyterian. There's room for you, sinner. There's room at the Father's table for you. And all of your self-righteousness, everything that you muster to commend yourself to God, it doesn't, it's filthy rags, minstrel rags, saith your God. But God says, come, come to my son's banquet table. Come, come anew today. Come afresh, taste and see. Taste my goodness, know my goodness. Come without money, without cost. Why, 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 church, do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? You see, this is the God we serve. This is the God who invites. This is God who says there's still room. There's room for preachers sparking at this table. There's room for us. Matthew 22.10, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So the wedding hall was filled with guests, filled with tax collectors, right? We saw this, we see this in the Gospels. Who responds? Tax collectors come. Harlots come, right? Sinners, Gentiles, all are called, right? Come find forgiveness. Come find imputed righteousness and victory over the mastery of sin. No one is too vile. No one is too far gone. You see, once the invitation was limited to the nation of Israel, but today the salvation of our God is offered to all who call upon his name. J.C. Ryle says, if we miss the opportunity, it's no fault but our own. If we don't come, it's our fault. not God's fault. God will be found clear of the blood of all lost souls. Well, we've looked at the banquet. We've looked at the invitation. Now, let's look at this last part. This is the one that's gotten me. I was pleasantly blessed with as I studied it this week. It's verses 11 through 14. Those who come to the banquet must honor the Son. Let me unpack that for you. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, right, the whosoever will come from all over the nations, not just ethnic Israel, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. I used to struggle with this, and I'm still not 100% sure I understand it completely. But I do know this, it matters what you wear to the banquet. 
To come in the wrong clothes would be to insult the host, would be to insult the king. You see, how we dress communicates what we say or what we think about the host who invited us. Well, why is this man who is improperly dressed there? Well, no doubt he's there for the feast, right? He wants the the well-aged wine and the good food, right? And, you know, and I've been to some parties, some wedding feasts where they actually give you a gift for going. (laughs) That's strange. I don't know. I never knew that. I didn't know that happened. But they give you a goodie bag. It's kind of like going to someone's, like I go to Susu's birthday party and she has a gift for everyone else who shows up. Right? We're supposed to bring her the gift, but she gives us all the gifts. But by his failure to dress properly, you see, this man was unwilling to bear the cost or meet the requirements of the feast. Note verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. The king said to this man who was not dressed properly, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And we're told the word of God says he was speechless. He was speechless and he was defenseless. He knew that he was improperly dressed. Matthew Henry says he was convicted and condemned by his own conscience that he was not supposed to be there. What's the lesson for us? The kingdom of God is a gift without preconditions. Whosoever will, let them come. But, now listen, but kingdom life is demanding and the gift demands a response. Those God justifies with imputed righteousness received by faith alone, he also sanctifies with infused grace. Justifying faith is a faith that works through love. There are no saints that are just justified without being sanctified. In the previous parable, if you look up there in chapter 21, verses 41 to 43, regarding the parable of the tenants, the tenants who are originally given the vineyard are kicked out, and Jesus tells us he's going to give the vineyard to new tenant holders, those who will produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Those whose life will match their profession. Matthew Henry says this. The wedding garment, now listen, is a frame of heart and a course of life agreeable to the gospel and our profession of it. You see what he's attacking? You see what he's exposing here? He's exposing the antinomian. He's exposing the hypocrite who says, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z in your name? He's doing the very thing he does in Matthew 7. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Beloved, the man without the wedding clothes was attempting to partake of a feast without an appropriate change of life. He represents all those who profess faith but whose lives have not been changed by supernatural regenerating grace. You see, he's exposing the hypocrite. The weeds that grow among the wheat. Right? That's another parable we'll get to eventually. They both grow simultaneously. 
in the kingdom until the last day, until the harvest. Saints, it was Israel's lack of fruit, the fruit of repentance that brought about its rejection by God. They had the form but no substance. They had a form of godliness but no substance. R.T. France. The wedding garments represent a simple life of a pro, of a simple simply a life appropriate to one of God's children. All are invited but not without repentance, not without faith, not without a desire to honor the king and his son. The improperly dressed man is using the gospel as fire insurance. He wants out of hell. He might even want heaven. He wants the goodie bag. But you know the one thing that he does not want? He doesn't want the king and he doesn't want the king's son. This is a serious word, isn't it? A very serious word. I was so convicted. The king said to the servants, notice what the king said to the servants about the man who doesn't have the wedding garments. Bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In the place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, for all who refuse to honor the son, there awaits only a fiery judgment. So Jesus concludes, many are called, but few are chosen. You see, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved in the end, but only those who do the will of the Father. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what he's teaching here. You see, all that the Father has given the Son will come. He will lose none. He invites us all, and all who honor the Son are guaranteed a place at the table. So what's the bottom line for us? Work out your calling, your election, with fear and trembling. Look to Jesus Christ, the elect one for you, your righteousness. You know, so often I used to think faith was a static thing. I don't know, I've never talked with Red about this, but it's just like it's somehow just some abstraction. You know, it just takes hold of a, a proposition. But faith takes hold of a person. And this person sets about not only to justify me, give me imputed righteousness, he sets about to, to change me, to transform me, to make me like himself. Well, it's not static in that sense. It's, it's kind of like living in, it's, it, it, it does a lot of things. Sometimes it, it, it has a, a, an issue of blood for 12 years and it, it just says he's coming and I've got to reach out and get him. And sometimes it just rests. Jesus, I'm resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Sometimes it trembles at the warnings. Sometimes it weeps with joy at the promises as he thinks about heaven. But it's, it's living. It's a living thing. Go and read the confession of faith on faith. Just, just take it in and sit in it. There's all kinds of faith in the word of God. The faith of demons. I'm amazed in the gospel of John Sparky how many people say they believe. But then they all depart when he says something hard. You think, well, what happened to that faith? It wasn't saving faith. It was spurious faith. It, was, it wasn't genuine justifying faith. You see, that's what this man, he did not have justifying faith. His faith did not work through love. And he was improperly clothed. And on the last day, when the king comes into the banquet, he's exposed. 
Oh, beloved, he who has ears, let him hear. Pray for your pastor. Pray for me. Pray that we'll finish strong, right? I'm getting older. Seriously, my age is all. Pray that we'll finish strong, that I'll finish strong. Strong trusting and leaning into Jesus more and more every day, right? And we'll pray for these girls too. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it clears the deck of our heart. It breaks down every idol for it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't compromise as we're apt to do and our hearts are apt to do. It comes straight and it convicts and it cuts and it wounds that it might mend us again and make us whole in Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you that you who began this good work in us are faithful and we pray and ask that we would continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling knowing it's you who work to will within us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.